1: Slow Burn Media and Bill Huffman present My Passion Case. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and again, this is a Slow Burn Media production. On this week's show, I will be taking both of my shows and combining them to create a two-parter about the death of 14-year-old Christine Diefenbach, out of Queens, New York. What makes this case special is that I actually get to talk to a true professional about this case, and she works actually within the confines of the Queens borough. So Michelle Kazuba, who has practiced law for a number of years, is very, very knowledgeable upon this case. She currently works in the financial crimes uh, division in New York City, in Queens, I should say. And also been a part of the organization of the Investigations for the Missing. She does write-ups for them as well. And again, she is really knowledgeable about this case. And I really hope that you guys will take the time to listen to what she has to say because it's not very often that we get to talk to lawyers about how these cases get put together and especially cold cases that have not been solved for over 30 years. So join me this week as we explore who killed Christine Diefenbach with Michelle Kazuba. This week's guest on my passion case is Michelle Kazuba. Thank you so much for joining me, Michelle. How are you tonight?
0: Not too bad. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. Give the listeners a little bit of a bio on what you are up to and what it is that makes you so. Much of a true crime, I guess, well, one, just writer and obviously your job, (laughs) but you don't have to get into that too much because we'll just keep it real.
0: Yeah, so I have worked in public service um, for a district attorney's office since 2006. I spent four years as a paralegal while I went to law school at Hofstra Law on Long Island. And I was working for the Queens County District Attorney's Office as a paralegal uh, while I was doing law school. So when I graduated, I became an assistant district attorney, and I worked for the County of Queens until the end of June of 2019, where I took a position as a senior ADA, assistant district attorney, at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office here on Long Island.
1: Oh, that's awesome. So I've, uh, you know, obviously interviewed Maggie about the Long Island serial killer. You don't by chance have any involvement with investigating that case. Do you?
0: I don't right now. I'm assigned to the um, financial investigations and money laundering bureau.
1: Oh, Sorry. I love that too, though.
0: <laughs> it's, it's amazing how, how much that aspect of, of investigations of financial crimes dips into so many different other areas of crime, you know, including homicides. So that's one of the reasons why I decided to go into it after uh, my career as, as an, um, an assistant district attorney investigating homicides for Queens. Um, after that came to, to an end, I decided to go into financial crimes. Well,
1: that's very cool. I've always been looking, well, I'm currently looking for a good corporate crime slash murder. I think you might be the perfect resource in that department. <laughs> <And sometimes, laughs> but that's a, that's another conversation.
0: <laughs> sometimes those cases are, are interesting because it's not so much of a clear cut murder. A lot of times, you know, one of the one of the um one of the words that gets thrown around very liberally, I think, in the true crime community, and not for any reason other than, you know, if you don't Torture yourself with years upon years of law school and working in a DA's office. Um, you might not come across this, but homicide is actually the definition. It defines everything. Homicide is actually the broad umbrella that any death by the hand of another falls under. So you're talking about a murder. You're talking about a manslaughter, um, a vehicular, a vehicular death, like a driving while intoxicated or driving while on in the influence of drugs. You know that's that's one of those that's one of those words that that I feel like needs to be defined sometimes and, you know, coming on shows like yours um, helps me to hopefully help.
1: And I like it when it's real. People don't like overproduced shit and I hate overproduced stuff. I mean, oh my God, everything on, I mean, I was on ID, but at least they didn't overproduce me. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Oh, we tuned into that.
1: (laughs) Good. I but, saw there
0: was, some other, there was some other dude, James Renner or something. Yeah,
1: Renner, <laughs> Renner and I go back. Go yeah, back. We funny. go back a decade you, or so.
0: <laughs> I'll tell you the story of how my boyfriend and I got Renner drunk in Manhattan. He lost
1: well, that's not difficult. <laughs> <laughs> not difficult. So in your job, you obviously cover a lot of different, you know, homicides and different versions of homicide. You know, give me your two cents on, on where that stuff is.
0: So you know, one of the words that I hear used very liberally throughout the, the true crime community is the interchangeable homicide and murder. And what homicide actually legally means is death by the hand of another. Um, so homicide is the big umbrella that has um, murder and manslaughter, um, which manslaughter is, you, know, you intend to seriously physically harm somebody, but instead cause their death. Um, vehicular cases where somebody is driving drunk or driving under the influence of drugs and and hits a, and hits a, a person or a car and causes their death. and sometimes there is homicide without any fault you know such as an accident you don't intend to cause the death of another person or you're not acting recklessly um, or you're not acting negligently but you still, um, you, you still cause the death of someone else. So there's a lot of different terms that fall under that umbrella. And it's something that, you know, in my, in my investigations in, you know, my, my history of working investigations as an ADA that I've come up against in a lot of different cases.
1: Yeah, it's good that everybody understands the, the differences between those cases, you know, between homicide and, you know, murder and all that. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And and it is important. I think it really does set the tone for what people's expectations are when they're kind of listening to any of these sort of, uh, I hate to call them stories, but they are stories. And so, you know, anytime they listen to these, they need to know what they're listening to and understand what it is that they're actually listening to. It's like when Nick and I did, Nick from True Crime Garage and I did the uh, yogurt shop murders this past week. Well, it will be a few months past, but we did the yogurt shop murders and we talked about how it was good to have like a a map of what the store looked like because it's much easier to understand what happened in the store if you have an idea of what the store format was like. And I think that's very important for the listeners, especially when it comes to understanding what homicide murder all that stuff means. And
0: you know, one of the things that I do outside of work is I volunteer with private investigations for the missing. Um, it's an organization, a nonprofit organization that's run by Bruce Maitland, whose daughter Brianna Maitland went missing in 2004. Um, so as part of the, the volunteer team, you know, me and a bunch of other dedicated people, including, um, the infamous Tim and Lance of crawl space and missing more um, our good friend Jenna Mel, who is working on the Suitcase Jane Doe case out of Pennsylvania, and um, our good friend Jillian Kuzma, who is a technical writer and editor. We, Jillian and I, work on a lot of the social media and a lot of the blog posts for um, for the website. And one of the things that we were trying to do with that is, you know, call instead of saying cases because cases sound so impersonal, and we want to make this personal. We want it to be about people. So we call it the missing person's story and I think it's I think it's important because it gives ownership back to the person whose life we're delving into because you know, once a once a person is missing or murdered, especially something like an unsolved case um, like the one I'm gonna talk about with you today, that story and that person becomes part of the public it becomes. It it becomes something that everybody gets to put a hand in, that everybody gets to have an opinion about because it's out there. And it's a double-edged sword because you want people to talk about these cases, especially the ones that you don't hear about all that often. But at the same time, every time somebody talks about it, the, the missing or the murdered person loses a little bit of ownership of their story. So what's one of the things we try to do with PI for the Missing through um, all of our social media networking and our posts and all of that? And something that I try to bring into my, my job and the work that I do, especially work I do with victims and victims' families, to remind them that even though everyone gets to have a piece of this horrible event, that the ownership of the story and the memories that they have are still are still theirs
1: yeah i definitely agree with you on all those uh points because i feel like a lot of these cases in a lot of scenarios so many times the victim is forgotten and it's not that the victim's forgotten as much as it is like like you said becomes part of the story but the story has been taken away from that victim and it's taken on a life of its own i love that you guys are kind of putting that name back to that victim and i think that is a very important aspect of what we as podcasters do and especially especially in a true crime podcast where it's a slippery slope you know you don't want to like it's not exploitation as long as there's advocacy. It's just it's gotta have balance.
0: Yeah, you're walking a fine line.
1: Yeah. And it's like you wanna you wanna get the the right stories out there. And with that being said, what story and what case is Michelle the most passionate about?
0: So this is the story of a murder, a cold case murder that I investigated while I worked at the Queens County District Attorney's Office. And it is the murder of Christine Diefenbach from Richmond Hill, Queens. So to give you an idea of how me, a lawyer, (laughs) got involved in cold cases. um, So when I started working as an assistant district attorney in Queens County, I was transferred out of misdemeanor court, which is where everybody starts. You know, you kind of cut your teeth on all those, on all, you know, the, uh, the petty larcenies and the simple assault cases. And I went into a specialized unit called the Homicide Investigations Bureau. Um, homicide Investigations was made up of about five to seven assistant district attorneys who worked alongside the New York City Police Department, um, the Queens County Homicide Squad, and the actual squad detectives from all the precincts that make up the county. So one of the things that's interesting about Queens is that we're one of the only we were one of the only boroughs or district attorney's offices in the area that actually had something like that, and the goal was, as an ADA, we're working alongside the detectives to make sure that the cases that we were building were solid evidentiary wise and also constitutionally. So anytime something had to be done, like a search warrant or Um, any kind of legal process like a subpoena or like a trap and trace to follow somebody's phone. We did that. The ADAs did it alongside the, the police department. Um, And we also, you know, we, we gave them pointers on, you know, when you can, especially in New York, and this is probably one of the hardest things to learn in New York is right to counsel law. So there would be a lot of, you know, discussion about, you know, can you interview this person? Can you not interview this person? Did they invoke their right to counsel? Things like that, and we would pro- we would process the arrest alongside them, so that way, you know, it would really become like these these different case files would become like a, a real part of us. So while I was there, I was always very interested in cold cases, and when I was in law school, I picked up this book called The Restless Sleep by Stacy Horn. And I read it probably like two or three times before I made it to homicide investigations bureau. (laughs) And that's a huge feat considering how much reading you have to do for law school. And there is a case that was profiled in there and it was Christine's story. So I was familiar with her name and I was familiar with her story and Sometime around, I kind of think it was like 2014 ish maybe um, i was I noticed as I would be walking back and forth through our office, there was all these like dusty old boxes that were up on top of um like these like these big like those industrial um filing cabinets yeah and I saw there was a name written on it, like really sloppy. And I would walk by just, you know, every single day. And then like, it wasn't clicking for that second. You know, like, where did I, where did I see this? Where did I see this from? And then finally I looked at it one day and it dawned on me. I was like, oh, the box is deep and back. And then I was like, oh, the book. Oh, the case. Oh shit. So I waited till everybody went home um, on like a Friday night, because this is how I would spend my Friday nights. And I grabbed a chair and I got this big dusty box off of the top of this filing cabinet um, and brought it down to my office and started reading. And in the box was um, copies of, you know, all the police reports um, chronicling the story of what happened to this girl.
1: Did you stay there all night?
0: I stayed there for a good amount of time. It wasn't all night, but it was definitely uh, definitely past a point where most people would stay at the office on a Friday night.
1: <laughs> gotcha. So basically, where does uh, where's this case stand? Or how does this case get started?
0: Um, so as of today, this case is still unsolved. So I'm hoping that by talking about Christine and her murder, that maybe there'll be somebody listening out there who... You know, shares the case on social media, or talks about it, or maybe there's somebody who knows something um, and can actually call the NYPD tip line to to give uh, to give some information. Um, so the case starts in February of 1988. So on February 7th, 1988, 14 year old Christine and Diefenbach was walking out of her house in Richmond Hill, Queens. She had four quarters in her pocket and she was headed to a corner store a couple blocks away so she could get a newspaper and pick up a gallon of milk for her family. So she left around 7.30 a.m., but Christine never made it home. It's always a
1: gallon of milk, you know? And I mean,
0: 1988, four quarters, how much did a gallon of milk cost then?
1: I mean, gosh, the good old days. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so she leaves it around a little after seven, seven thirty in the morning. And this was um this was kind of a Sunday routine. She liked to go get the newspaper because she there was this um like magazine in the newspapers then in in New York called Parade. And it would be, like, like kind of like an entertainment, like, little magazine that was, like, stuffed in the Sunday paper.
1: Oh, you're not so cool. We had that here in Cleveland. Come on. Okay.
0: All right. <laughs> um, I remember for the big it. time city folk. <laughs> I remember it from growing up um, in Nassau County. You know, because, of course, my sister and I would, like, grab the paper and we'd go looking for, like, the interesting stuff. You know, like, the toy catalogs. <laughs> and, you know, you'd grab the parade magazine and see what was on the front. So, she was actually looking for, Christine was looking for um, articles about, you know, one of her two favorite idols of the time, which were Wayne Newton and David Hasselhoff. So,
1: well, I mean, might as well set your sights on somebody that's attainable. I mean,
0: and you know, it's, what's interesting is that when you think about the time, right? So like in, in 1988, so I was eight years old then, and, you know, I was still, I was still, you know, in into the, you know, the cartoons and, you know, the Disney movies and playing with my My little ponies and entertaining my little sister and stuff. So I wasn't, you know, at that, you know, 14-year-old age of, you know, having, like, the celebrity crush yet. But when you think about that time period, like, what girls who were like, 14, 15 years old, like, were they looking for, you know, like, River Phoenix and, you know, like, who who else was you know a heartthrob then and there's christine who is you know really she's into something a little different you know she's into wayne newton and david hasselhoff
1: <laughs> oh so, man what a weird kid
0: <laughs> you know, she in a way christine was your typical teenager and at the same time she wasn't she was into Art and drawing, and she was very withdrawn. She seemed like she was a very introverted kid, but you know, at the same time, she she had the same kind of tendencies as a teenager would. She had her her heartthrobs and her crushes. She was super into movies and her art, but she was very she's very quiet. She was, you know, I think what drew me to her case after reading about her in Stacey Horn's book was how similar I felt she was to me because I was a very shy, quiet kid. And you know, then I went to law school and now I, they, no one can get me to shut up. Um, but, you know, she, where, where Christine would lose herself in her art and the movies that she would rent for me, it was books you know, I read everything I can get my hand on. I would, I was the, I was the kid at the library who would like max out the amount of books you could take out. Um, so I, I kind of, I kind of felt like it, like she was a kindred spirit to me, in a way, because I understood, you know, who she, who she was as, as a person. You know, this this wasn't a young woman, a young lady who was. You know smoking by the side of the railroad tracks or sneaking drinks out of her out of her parents' you know liquor cabinet or you know running the streets or anything like that you know she seemed like she was a bit of a homebody, she knew what she was interested in, and you know yeah, so she was probably kind of a nerdy kid, but you know what I was too
1: <laughs> i mean a lot of kids are at that age it's just you're just kind of finding your way, so
0: yeah, when I work on case for an agency such as the Queen's District Attorney's Office or for my current job at the Suffolk County DA's office, there is certain information that myself as an ADA and the police will hold back or not talk about um, that is considered confidential. So everything that I'm talking about today is, is information that is out in the public, that is publicly accessible. And also I'm talking about my thoughts and my theories which are solely my own and not the thoughts or theories of either of the agencies that I work for. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see we could not, but she did. And in
1: the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Disclaimer, done.
0: Yeah. I mean listen, you put you, you get a lawyer on your podcast.
1: I hear ya. I hear ya. Tie <laughs> your eyes, cross your T's. Do what you gotta do.
0: So Christine was born on May 15th, 1973. And in 1988, she was 14 years old. Um she was in ninth grade. And she went to a local um, intermediate school, a public school. So her family lived in Richmond Hill, which is part of the borough of Queens. So, um, you know, as, as most people know, but I'll say it anyway, um, you know, New York City is made up of five boroughs. Queens is one of them. And Richmond Hill, it's a little bit closer to like the Nassau County, Long Island border, Um, Not super close, but it's also about 16 miles outside of Manhattan. So I was familiar myself with with Richmond Hill because um, for part of her life, my mother grew up there, um, living with my grandmother, my aunt and uncle. um, And she would tell me stories about, you know, growing up in in Queens, you know, when she was was younger. Um, And also when I was in law school, my best friend from law school, Katie, she actually lived in Richmond Hill as well. So I got to know the neighborhood a little bit because we would go up to her apartment to like study and order Italian food, study for finals, you know, play with her pets, things like that. And I worked for the, when I was working for the Queens DA as a paralegal when I was in law school, you know, my actual office wasn't really that far from Richmond Hill and this area uh, where Christine was murdered. So going back to 1988, it was kind of a rough time in the boroughs of New York. So Richmond Hill itself was kind of like a working class, like regular person neighborhood. Um Christine lived in her house. It was one of those like attached houses um with her mother, her father and her five-year-old sister. And if I remember correctly, her father was a transit worker. Um so they were just a regular average middle-class family. So what she would do on Sunday mornings was she would, you know, grab some money, take a walk to the corner store that was about like a couple blocks, you know, two to three blocks away from her house and she would get a newspaper with the parade magazine. She would also. She was also asked by her parents on this particular day to pick up a gallon of milk. So when Christine would leave her house, she had two choices of which way she could go to get to the corner store. So one, she could walk all the way around the block down 89th and head up the couple blocks to the corner store, or she could take the shortcut across Long Island Railroad tracks. So the Long Island railroad tracks that were near her house were, and you know, just for anybody who's unfamiliar, unlike myself, who spent many a day on the Long Island railroad. um, It's a, it's a public transit system that runs from um, Manhattan and Brooklyn all the way to the East end of Long Island.
1: Trains constantly running.
0: Trains constantly running on time. Sometimes. (laughs) Touche. (laughs) So this um, area actually wasn't an active train station. It was more of a train yard. And there was a lot of trains that were out of service or that needed repairs and things like that, um, that were in this like train yard, like maintenance facility. And so just to also give you an idea of what New York City was like, what the Borough Queens was like in 1988, um, it was not so...
1: Was it like about- the Warriors? <laughs>
0: <laughs> there were there were parts of the there were definitely parts of the city in the mid eighties to to early nineties that you could not go into. It was rather dangerous. You know, when you, if you ever see like you know the stock footage of like the um, the subway cars with the graffiti. Oh yeah. You know? Yeah, it was. It was there. Were they were definitely so New York City in the like late 1980s and 1988, you know, in particular, the borough of Queens, you know, the the city was was definitely being affected by drugs and the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. Um, There were parts of the city, parts of the borough that were not, you know, particularly welcoming to, you know, a young lady like Christine or even to tourists um, just because they were downright dangerous. Right. So you have this rail yard That's right around the corner from her house with these abandoned train cars. And it was known around the neighborhood that, you know, you'd have, you know, homeless people or people who were looking for, you know, a a quiet place to to use drugs. Okay, so this Long Island Railroad train yard that was right around the block from Christine's house. So, you know, as I said before, like there was a lot of there's a lot of train cars in there that weren't being used. So you would have, you know, people who were homeless, who didn't have another place to go, would camp out over there. You'd have, you know, people with, you know, drug dependency and alcohol dependency, you know, going to, you know, leaving their home, leaving a bar, leaving someplace to go up to this area because to them it was a safe place to to use.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so nowadays, and I've walked this area where Christine was murdered um, a couple times with the detective who has the case now and in 1988 when you would come around you come out christine would come out of her house she could make a right go around the block and come down 89th avenue and as she's coming down 89th avenue on her right would be this like rickety old wooden staircase and the staircase would lead up to the railroad tracks and from there, you could cross over the, you know, different intersecting railroad tracks and come down on the other side. And she would mm. be closer to the, she'd be closer to the the corner store. Mm. <laughs> you know, interviews and, you know, police interviews done with her father, John. You know, he says he told her many, many times, don't go up there. Don't use the shortcut. If you want a ride, I'll give you a ride. So I don't, I don't exactly know If she used the shortcut, there's some reports that she had used the shortcut before. You know, there's other, you know, there's other, there's other reports that she hadn't. Either way, she never makes it to the corner store on February 7th, 1988. It's around 1230, 1245 PM that two men who had gone up by the railroad tracks to relieve themselves literally stumbled across Christine's body.
1: Everybody's worst fear.
0: Yeah. And, you know, having worked in the homicide unit for Queen's DA for, I did it for about four, four and a half years. Um, I've seen a lot of death scenes. I've been to a lot of crime scenes. And seeing the crime scene photos of Christine's murder was heartbreaking. Working in homicide, there's a lot of compartmentalization that goes on. Because at the end of the day, it's a job. And if you're going to be going to crime scenes and if you're going to be seeing certain things, you have to pack it in a box and kind of put it away in the back of your mind so you can do your job. Right. But there was something about the photos, the crime scene photos, that really I couldn't compartmentalize it. It was just maybe because the more I learned about her, I I felt more like a kindred spirit to her or because she seems so young and innocent that it's so undeserving of the brutality Mm -hmm. that had been exacted upon her, that, that it really, I, it was, I was upset. I was angry. I still am that someone could do what they did to, to this poor young lady. So these two men come across her body, they run down the steps and they go, they call 911. So when the police got there, this is what they see. You have an area that is even in February. Um, it's cold, but there's still like a lot of like brush and trees and stuff like overgrowth that's up there by the tracks. On one side, there's the signal box for the railroad, and about 25 feet away from from the signal box was Christine's body, and she's laying face up, and there is litter and garbage and stuff just everywhere. Mm. And her clothes are in disarray. And one side of her head is just completely obliterated. So her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. That was so severe that it caused bleeding on her brain. Mm. This 14-year-old girl who doesn't come home after going for a routine short walk to the corner store. Her father, after a while, Father John is like, I don't understand why Christina hasn't come home. He sets out around the neighborhood looking for her. And as he's driving towards 89th, he sees the police cars and the yellow tape. And he goes up to the police officer and they ask him if he had a picture of his daughter. And just stop and think what that must be like. That poor man, he went and he got a picture of his daughter and they confirmed that it was her. A few other notes about the crime scene. There wasn't a weapon or an apparent weapon found at the scene. There's a lot of garbage, there was a lot of litter, there's a lot of debris, but they didn't find anything that you would expect that, to have caused, like the catastrophic injuries to her head. <clears throat> the money for her errand, the four quarters, were still in her pocket. So I believe that she never made it to the corner store. And that whatever happened, happened very soon after she left her house. Later, semen was also found on her pants leg. And there was one foreign hair that was found near her vaginal area. So the theory or the thoughts have been that um, person was trying to sexually assault her. or assailant was trying to sexually assault her, but, but didn't or couldn't fully complete the act.
1: Now, do you think he got interrupted or?
0: I err on, on the side of, and my, my opinion more is that is that he, um, that he, couldn't, that he couldn't do it. Because the amount of the amount of damage that was done to her head was so severe, I, to me it didn't look like two or three kicks or stumps or you know being hit with a baseball bat two times or I don't know. But it looks it looked to me severe enough that someone would have had to spend a. a
1: Okay, so my question was, uh, do you think he was interrupted in the middle of trying to perform some sort of deviant act on Christine?
0: My mind goes to no, only because the injuries to the side of her head and what was was done to her that ultimately killed her, it wasn't something that was going to take, that was something that wasn't going to take like a couple kicks or a couple blows. That had to take time. I think this was more of a situation where the assailant couldn't complete the deviant sexual act and took out his frustration on Christine instead.
1: That makes sense too. I mean, I could see that being, I mean, it's not the first time that that's ever come up in a case where, you know, a person can't perform. So therefore they take out their anger on the victim or person who becomes a victim. So I guess you can't rule that out. She was pretty beat up.
0: Yeah. It was It was very, very bad. It was definitely up there with some of the worst crime scene photos that I've seen or scenes that I've been to myself.
1: How long after the discovery of the body, but searchers and stuff able to get to her and then get her to the coroner and were they able to get any DNA out of her or...
0: So everything actually happened rather quickly. So she leaves the house a little after 7.30. I believe that she was attacked very soon thereafter. She is discovered around 12.30, 12.45 p.m. The same she's day? Identified. Same day. Same wow. day. She's identified right after that from her father coming to look for her. And she's after, you know, a the crime scene photos were taken and the... And, you know, evidence collection was there. Um, she was taken to the coroner pretty, pretty quickly. But in, you know, in 1988, you're seeing the beginnings of forensic DNA.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the technology, you know, as we know it today, didn't exist in the way we know it today. You know, nowadays, when I'm working on on a case, you know, even sometimes, believe it or not, in financial investigation cases, when we're looking for to swab DNA. You know, I'm looking at the entire scene and I'm looking for every single place where DNA could be because we have so many different ways of swabbing for and extracting DNA. Um, you know, for instance, you know, you have someone with a, who is, who is stabbed. You want to look for, for, you know, any blood pattern or anything that could have, you know, that could be you know, the assailant having cut themselves. If someone is strangled, you want them, you want to be able to swab the neck or, you know, get the fingernails to see if there's any, you know, DNA or skin cells underneath the fingernails. Um, With low-copy DNA, you can take a swab of someone's neck and you might be able to get something. Um, But the DNA does have its limitations, especially on old cases. Because back in the 70s, 80s, even 90s, we weren't, you know, crime scenes weren't processed the same way. Evidence wasn't collected the same way, and it wasn't stored the same way. And sometimes evidence gets lost, or it's mishandled, or it's just not packaged correctly just because nobody knew how valuable it was going to be 30 years into the future.
1: Yeah, I mean, nobody knows what the future is going to hold for what samples, you know, it's like, what are you going to do, bag up everything and then put it all in the freezer? I mean, I know that's what you do now, but or something along those lines now. But still, it's like you're kind of, yeah, in 88, you really didn't have any idea what the hell you were talking about. I mean... At least in cases that I've covered, it's it was like finding a needle in a hair uh, needle in a haystack needle in the haystack.
0: Yeah, and also it's not just it's not just you know the it's not just the the newness of the DNA and how to actually process a scene and collect evidence. It was also that in New York City at that time, you were having like each borough out of the five boroughs was having um, I don't know like upwards of like fifteen hundred to two thousand homicides each borough. That is a lot. No. Let me take that back. Hold on. I think my stats are wrong. <laughs> let me go back to my notes. I was
1: going to say, that's, sick, that's like 7,500 murders. I don't know if they had that many murders.
0: No. <laughs> Police <Please> stand by. <laughs> no, this was, El, city was El
1: Juarez.
0: <laughs> the entire city was obliterated. There's literally nothing left. Kurt um,
1: Russell was in charge.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was the Warriors. <laughs> Okay. <clears throat> you know, aside from not knowing about or understanding or having DNA and forensics being in constant use like we have today, um, you, know, you also have a really big city, New York City, having, you know, definitely over a thousand to two thousand murders within, within, you know, the entirety of, of the city. And that's a lot. And to put it in perspective, like when I was in – when I first came into homicide, you know, 2012 going into 2013, I think we had 120 homicides in Queens for the year. And when I was transferred – when I was transferred um, in about 2016, I think there was only 85 by the time I was transferred. Wow. So that's a really, really low number um, compared to the crimes and the types of street-level crimes especially – um, you know, gunpoint robberies, shootings, things like that, um, that were occurring in the city at that time. So Christine's Christine's murder was definitely something that was out of the ordinary because it was a fourteen year old girl who had no affiliation with right. um, culture or gangs or you know, coming from, you know, a background where you know, that was you know something that she would do. You know, she wasn't running the street. She wasn't,
1: Oh, she was the definition of an innocent bystander.
0: Yeah. She was, a, she was an innocent victim and probably, you know, one of the purest of innocent victims. You know, what could she's a 14 year old girl who likes horses and to draw
1: all girls like horses and like to draw, but this is, you know, I mean, yes, it's an absolute tragedy. Has there been any movement on suspects? Any, uh, I mean, when the investigation was full bore, did they have anything that they were caught on the trail of that they just couldn't connect the dots to?
0: So, yeah, given that this was the murder of a 14-year-old girl, it was all hands on deck. Yep. In February 88. And for days upon days, you know, you had, and I remember from reading the, um, the police reports and the paperwork. I mean, you had detectives and officers from like all these different agencies. You had the homicide squad. You had the 102 precinct detective squad. You had Long Island Railroad detectives who were their own separate unit. I mean, there was just, they were running down every single lead. They were talking to every person they can get their hands on once, twice, and again. Um, But nothing, no one saw anything. Nobody saw anything that, led to a credible suspect, I can say. And then all of these resources that were going towards the investigation into Christine's murder. So every resource that had been used for the investigation into Christine's murder was diverted on February 26, 1988, which is a day that anybody who lived and worked in Queens for any period of time remembers as the day that police officer Edward Byrne was killed. Um, this was an event that occurred on February 26, 1988. Um, Officer Byrne was posted up in front of a witness's house in Jamaica, Queens. And Jamaica was definitely one of those neighborhoods that was hit really hard by the crack epidemic. There was a lot of drug dealing. There was a lot of gang activity in that neighborhood at the time. And there was a lot of witness intimidation. There were people who had lived in this area for long periods of time. To put it in perspective, um, my father and my grandparents lived in Jamaica when my, when my father was growing up. Like my grandparents owned a Polish deli in Jamaica. And, you know, they moved, uh, they moved out to Long Island um, when I was born in 1980. So, you know, that's, you had this kind of migration of the middle class out of Jamaica, but you still had people who were living there and who wanted their, they wanted their neighborhood back. And I had one guy who was actually willing to stand up to the criminal element that had moved into their neighborhood. And officer Byrne was posted up in front of his house because um, this guy had agreed to testify against several people from the neighborhood who were engaged in drug dealing and his house had already been firebombed twice. So they said, you know what, let's put a police officer in front of his house. But they only put one police officer there. It was just Eddie. And, you know, shortly during, you know, during you know, after he started his shift, he was sitting in his patrol car in uniform, and these four guys surrounded the car, and he was shot multiple times. And that was the, that event was the, it was like the, the epitome of the lawlessness that was occurring in the city at the time.
1: I can't thank Michelle enough for coming on My Passion Case, aka Who Killed, and discussing this case, because I don't think a lot of people are familiar with it, at least people that aren't from the Queens area. So the more people that listen, the more people that know about a case like this, is all the better. And again, this is just part one of a two-parter, so join me next week for that as well. And thank you guys for tuning in. I really, really do appreciate it. Um, If you guys do enjoy this podcast and some of the other shows that I produce, you know, you can help support my journalism by clicking on the Donate button on the left-hand side of SlowBurnMedia.com, that is slow minus the W. Or you can contribute to the show via the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3, or via PayPal with my email BillHuffman123 at yahoo.com. I will also provide a link in the show notes. And you guys, every contribution does help keep these shows running, so I do really appreciate any support. And you can also keep the show in the spotlight by leaving a five star review if you do enjoy the show. So if you'd like to keep up to date on the cases that I have coming down the pipeline, please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3. And again, if you have any information, In regards to the murder of Christine Diefenbach, please call the New York City Police Department or 1-800-CALL-FBI. You can also submit a tip via Crime Stoppers. So again, stay tuned next week for part two of Who Killed Christine Diefenbach. And until next time, be healthy and stay safe.
0: It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.
1: On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America.